A flashback on the career that made them who they are today. On this episode. Hey, mailbag day on the Pepsi Car 30. We're not doing it in the basement today. It's too cold. So we're going to do a nice mid-range here. Nobody would allow that today, having a presenter have a bunch of, like, papers. And I'm not saying it looked good, but that was very representative of what we did. This is Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ. Now, here's Erica M. Hi there, I'm Erica M. And thank you so much for tuning into what is sure to be a headbanger's dream on this episode of my reinvention of the VJ podcast. My guest today has been called the fair maiden of heavy metal. Always smiling, highly intelligent, ever elegant. That's the way I see her. It always surprised me that she ended up as the host of the Power Hour, a show about headbanging and heavy metal. Of course, I'm talking about Teresa Roncon, who joins me on the show today, where we will compare notes on life then and now for both of us. And I'm going to tell you something. They're shockingly similar. Before we jump into our interview, however, if this is your first time tuning into my podcast, let me give you a little bit of background. Reinvention of the VJ is my unscripted and up-close conversation with the eclectic and much-loved and desired, in this case, hosts that you may have grown up watching on much. And while all of our personalities and our approaches were different, there is one thing that we do all have in common, and that is that each of us played a small part in Canada's most influential pop culture platform. And then, as all good things do, things change, and we left at different times and for different reasons, each of us headed off on our own next adventures. And it's that story, the story of what happens after much, the reinvention, the resilience, the luck, the struggles, and really it's the perspective that intrigues me. For the last 14 years, I've been running one of Canada's largest platforms for moms. It's called ymc.ca. And my job has been connecting moms with brands. Now listen, 14 years, is a long time. So I'm hoping that this show will give me some ideas while I consider what the next chapter of my life is going to be. But you know what is actually most important about this show? You. I'm, I'm serious. I'm really making this show for you. Yes, it's going to be a trip down memory lane, but I'm also hoping that you find some interesting tidbits or insights into what it takes to get what you want in life, how to reinvent, and deal with tough times, or even redefine what success is. These kinds of ideas that hopefully you can apply to your own life. And no matter what, I can guarantee you, you will know Teresa Roncon way better after our conversation. So in today's show, we also have two questions from listeners for Teresa. So stay tuned at the end of the show. I'm going to tell you how you can be a part of the show as well. And now it's time to introduce my much music coworker, or actually my ex much music coworker. I don't know, once you're in, you stay in. Teresa Roncon, I'm so happy to be doing this with you. Welcome to the show. Oh, Erica, that was an incredible intro. Have you considered uh, content writing for a living? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> seriously, Teresa, probably of all the people that, that um, I'm going to be interviewing on this show, I really do feel like you and I have many similarities in our career path and in our lives as well. So we're going to talk about, we're going to get a little personal 
Okay, I'm, I'm warning you about that. And I think we're going to have a lot of fun in our conversation. I don't really know much about your background. All I know is that you were born in Portugal. I know that's really important to you. And the next piece of your life that I know is that you went to university studying theater. So my assumption is that you were a kid that was craving the stage. Is that who Teresa was growing up? Actually, there's uh, some of that is is true, um, is correct, because it's, the story is kind of complicated. I was actually born in Angola in Africa, but I'm Portuguese. My, my father was an engineer and was a young uh, lieutenant who had been conscripted to fight in that horrific colonial war that the Portuguese guys had were forced to go to because it was a fascist dictatorship at the time and that the poor African continent had inflicted on them 500 years of colonialism. Anyway, through no fault of his, he ended up there and he was recently married. So he took my mom and I was born there. But being born in Luanda, Angola was accidental. Only in that it drew my interest towards um, Africa and exploring. Um, so I actually grew up in Lisbon, Portugal, and immigrated to Canada when I was in grade seven. And uh, don't you know that I knew your husband, Terry, in grade seven at what? Zion Heights? Yes, we went to junior high school together. Okay, I did not know that. Well, now you do. <laughs> I think I might have told you 20 or 30 years ago. When you married him, Terry ran into me at some point and said, I'm married to Erica. And I said, you know me, is it Terry? Terry from Zion Heights? Yes. So that is a long time ago. So our paths do intersect slightly. We should do little little bells every time our paths intersect <laughs> on the show today. That's yeah. hilarious. Yeah. Okay, so you met Terry in grade seven when yes. you had just come from Lisbon I didn't speak then. a lick of English. Well, I, ha I knew how to say Mr. Smith's umbrella is black because I had some English lessons, but no, I didn't speak English. So, you know, fast forward to university, I was still kind of lost and uh, not really knowing what I wanted to do. But you asked me about performing. So one of the things that was amazing about my education in Portugal is that I went to a music school, a very liberal um, arts creative place where I played piano for my whole life. My grandma is a violinist. She played with the Lisbon Philharmonic for her entire career as well as taught. So I grew up in a musical environment. My dad loved, loved music. So my mom too, more classical. My dad was a kid that in the 50s used to uh, order um, 45s uh, from London because they didn't sell them in Lisbon and bring like collect his collection of um, uh, records, you know, little 45s uh, to play. Like I think Bill Haley and the Comets was his favorite. So I came with that education, that background. So if you ask me about performing, I did perform. I did do recitals. But when I ended up at university, I didn't know what the heck I wanted to study. And this is what I want to talk to you about is how you're so driven if you were focused, but I was not focused. I just wanted to have fun. <laughs> Except that I love books. I read ferociously ever since I was very little, first in Portuguese and then in English. So I thought, what the heck am I going to do? Well, I really don't know what to do. So why not study English Lit? And when I was studying English Lit, I got involved in the theater arts program at London and I loved it. It was so much fun. It was so hands-on and practical, but I learned early on that I'm a terrible actress. I really suck. <laughs> I can be me, but I can't be somebody else. I feel like I'm always playing. Unless I was like Charlize Theron in something about Mary where it's all a spoof. I, I don't think I could do it. I have so much respect for actors who dig deep and you know find something in themselves to, uh, to perform. Okay, you know what's interesting? I also went to theater school and I also sucked. 
And I also <laughs> am more comfortable in my own skin. Ding. Okay, continue. Okay, that's true. <laughs> but I love the program. The pro. It wasn't a whole theater program, but I loved the whole uh, aspect of the production. And um, yeah, and I didn't really know what to do when I when I finished. I worked at a library for two days. Two. <laughs> I quit after two days. I thought, get me out of here. I was working a lot in bars and restaurants at the time, doing a lot of going to a lot of, of bands, uh, concerts in local bars. I ended up at uh, working at the Big Bob four nights a week. I worked at RPM in the round bar, flipping beer bottles and opening them. And I thought I was just a cat's meow. No, I, I didn't, but I felt that was so much fun doing that. And, you know, I was armed with this education and I thought I, I really maybe would want to go into uh, journalism. So when I was a kid, I wanted to be either a journalist or an archaeologist. Both required some kind of, uh, you know, questioning. So I ended up at Ryerson doing a course, and uh, then I thought I would use my languages and volunteered at then Channel 47. Do you remember Channel 47? Multicultural station. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I volunteered in their video library, and then they asked me to co-host the Portuguese show on the weekends. Ah. I made horrendous mistakes. My Portuguese is not broadcast quality anymore. It's good, but it's not. Um, I did meet Jean Chrétien in the makeup room one time. And for Halloween, I dressed up as a cowboy in a pretty serious show. I thought, okay, that's funny. They just let me do whatever I want. So, uh, so then I sent City TV uh, an audition tape. And um, I guess I had somebody inside at City TV already, Todd Southgate, who became a really well-known environmental um, cameraman, videographer, producer, and lives in Brazil and now speaks Portuguese like me. We correspond on Facebook in Portuguese, if you can believe it. Really weird full circle. Okay, wait, are um, you ready for another ding, ding, ding? You I did dated him. That's right. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. You know, I knew that in the back of my little head. I didn't date Todd. We were good friends. Um, we were very good work colleagues. So he helped me get the job at City by putting together my tape. I didn't yeah. know that. He was already um, an editor there at the time. And uh, he did a very good job on my tape. Oh, my tape was so emotional. I was in a swing in Kensington Park with this big Alexandra Pope hat and coat all wrapped saying, who am I? I straddle two worlds, my immigrant background. I don't really know who I am. Here I am trying to become a new Canadian. Moses loved it, of course. I totally <laughs> was going to bring that up because I know that Moses always wanted to hire ethnic people because yeah. they reflected Toronto. He was very passionate about that. So you played the Portuguese card with him. Yes, I play the Portuguese card a lot. But guess what? It's mine to play. <laughs> yes. I'm not making that up. I really truly was an immigrant from, yes, a Western country and obviously did not have the same issues that many uh, BIPOC people have coming to this country because I looked as Canadian as Canadian came at the time or what people thought. But I didn't feel that inside of me. I felt something different. I felt like I was a different person than the, everybody that was walking around me. And so I feel like I brought that perspective. So I got a job at City. I was very excited. And my first memory of walking into City was looking up and Tracy Malshort was walking there. And she gave me this big smile and, you know, we became friends and I, I just... You know, it was a great, great memories. And after a year of being in news, um, which was an education all into itself, 
Um, I mean, I had obviously a degree with me I had taken, but I'd only taken uh, one journalism course. So I really learned a lot on the job, which was possible back then. And it's really not now. I was thrown into the first story that I did uh, with Lauren, uh, Lauren Honigman. <laughs> and it was a home invasion. And there was blood on the floor. And there was a dog that had saved the house and he said and then you got to come here and then the the, the homeowner defended themselves with a knife and you got to lift it up and you got to go like this <laughs> and you got to you know dramatize it and I thought, this is so cool I'm gonna love this job <laughs> how long did you do that for how long did you stay in the newsroom for one year so after one year I started my eyes started looking over there to where you were working uh, to entertainment. And, um, and, you know, I really was living the life. I putting on a suit, uh, going to do my stories. I was doing the best I could, and I was giving it 150%. But I was really drawn to entertainment. That's how I was living my life at night. I was young. I was 24 years old. I was going out to clubs. I was dancing. I was listening to a lot of music. All my friends were kind of alternative. And uh, so I went to the news director at the time and asked him, um, if I could go to entertainment. And he said, do you want a career or do you want to have fun? I said, I just want to have fun. I'm only 24. I just really want to have fun and have a job. <laughs> so he was, you know, half kidding, but he knew I belonged there. So they hired me as a, they, they switched me over to entertainment. I ended up hosting the weekend news. And, um, and then, you know, I uh, got more, involved in the entertainment um, portion of the news and the scene. And, um, and I saw all your VJs doing all those fun, super fun work, but I had a daytime gig, like I had a full-time job. And so this, back to your introduction, you say you always surprised, it always surprised you why I ended up hosting the Power 30. Um, <laughs> there's another audition for Moses. Um, well, if you recall, uh, there were lots of people that hosted a Power 30. Dan Gallagher, who's, who's passed away. Um, I mean, I think... Um, Lori Brown. Lori Brown at one point hosted JD. it. Too. JD hosted it. JD hosted it. And it was a very niche program. So what I was looking for was to do some VJing, to, to get onto that side of things from that world. I loved music. I loved the, from the energy and it was because it was one show I could do that and keep my entertainment reporting job so the entertainment reporting job gave me interviews with ballet dancers writers local bands you know visual artists photographers filmmakers I did that all you know for whatever happened to be in town reporting on the day's local entertainment news and then the VJ gave me the really fun super charged energetic rock show um a lot of the music i liked i loved of course it was the 90s i loved the grunge uh rock era loved it loved all that music um and i loved a lot of the energy that the other heavy metal bands brought and those young guys you know so many of them wanting to make it big in the world and wanting to be rock stars i mean that's how fun is that so when you were hosting that i had to fill in sometimes and I can I can guarantee that the bands hit on you all the time. Uh-huh. How did you deal with that? How did you deal with it? The bands hit on you all the time, Erica. Oh, I dealt with it. Yeah. I dealt with it. I but I'm curious how did you do it? Uh it depends on the situation. I would say that there's no 
prescription for how you deal with what essentially at the time was harassment, what is harassment, sometimes, sometimes not. Sometimes it's flirtatious. It's a bit of a dance. So let me describe one time that was full out, full out harassment and how I dealt with it. So I interviewed this band that was supposed to be the next Led Zeppelin. So I show up with a camera person and the producer, not Tanya Natchev. And I don't remember, oh, Tanya and I had a lots of fun. <laughs> she was uh, really great, a very, very uh, well-researched, thorough, great producer. The camera person, I can't remember who it was at the time. So we're in this dark little music hall and there's the A&R, the artist and repertoire rep from whatever the record label was and the band. And even before I start to roll, when I have my camera, my camera, my mic under them, the guy looked at me and said, it's really cold in here, isn't it? I said, pardon? He said, it's really cold. And then he looked right at my chest and he just kept his eyes on my chest. Like I'm a pretty friendly person. I grew up in the girls need to be nice era and just something in me, but I, have a, I, I can get hot. And I just looked at him and I was furious. And it was either slap him across the face or I did what hurt him the most. I said, oh, you know what? This interview is over. It's over before it even began. You just missed out on your chance to go on Canada's national music station. And I guarantee you, I'm going back to the station. I'm going to tell everybody what you did and nobody is going to interview you. And our person was like this. Jaw dropped. Yeah, and it was a young woman. She was like, I said, okay, bye. And I don't know what he thought of that. I never saw him, talked to him. I didn't even give it another second thought. Do you think, yeah, I I bet you were furious and so well handled. Do you think that there were different expectations put on the women who were on camera at much or were the women and men expected to do the same job in the same way? You know, Erica, the reality is I never really gave it a lot of thought. I just knew I could handle myself. And I have to tell you that I am a, I was, like I mentioned, born in Portugal, a very, a fascist dictatorship until 1974, very Catholic country, very, you know, strict. My family was not like that. We're fairly, within that context, we're very liberal. And I, I was a feminist through and through since as long as I can remember being, understanding what the word feminist is. In my school, Liberal Arts College, Glendon College, part of York University, probably 70% female, high LGBTQ population. I, I'm a feminist. I always have been. And I didn't think about my job just because I wore short skirts and, you know, had this great, you know, this, this job where I was out there interviewing people, being friendly, in no way that I expect that they needed to treat me with this respect. In no way I expected that. So when, when it happened... Um, and, you know, lot they were there. And I'm sure that I'm aware of them. I just, I was young and it's taken me longer to, um, to absorb it all. But I felt that my job was, they expected the same thing out of my job as they expected out of the men. I know there were salary issues. I know very well there were salary issues. That's another whole, that's different. I think what you're talking about is in the performance of the position, of the job, right? Okay, well, let's talk salary. Did you ever confront someone in a position of power about this disparity in salaries? I, I wasn't in a position to do it because I had no comparables. You see, for me, I was the only weekend entertainment anchor, the only, um, then the night anchor. So typically the night anchor has a lesser salary than the six o'clock anchor because there are less viewers, less advertising, less money. 
I was 23 when I got the job. So was I. Ding, ding, ding. That's funny. So I remember <laughs> seeing you get apply for your job. So here's another story going even further back. And I don't know how interesting this is. But I actually, in one, I took, so I finished grade 13 early because I had accumulated all my credits. Remember grade 13 in Ontario? Because I know you're from Quebec, from Montreal. So you had Sujet. And um, I had, I decided to work for six months, save my money so I could travel in Europe. Well, what job did I get? I got the job as an assistant to the lawyer of City TV when it was at 99 Queen Street East. What? I I worked for Elise Orenstein who was the lawyer at the time. Elise was in her 20s. She came to work wearing leather pants. She was the general counsel for City TV. And I typed out her like agreements and because I was a super fast fight typist because of my piano playing. When you're a classical pianist, you're the fastest typist in the world. Back then people typed, not computers. Did you type my contract? I don't know, I don't remember. But I typed agreements all the time. And I typed this play that everybody wanted me to write the script. Like I had to type out the script from, you know, from cursive. People had written notes. But I was downstairs where and saw you going in for an interview with Moses. You were wearing a hat. And I said, there's that cute girl with those big brown eyes. I recognize her in her funky hat. I think her name is Erica. And then next thing you know, you're on TV. Moses had talked to me about being a VJ. He said, what do you think? And I said, I don't know about that. I'm, I go, I'm going back to university. I, I hadn't even studied yet. Like I was a kid. So you had already crossed paths with Moses way before. I mean, just very briefly. It was all about, you know, I was working and I guess they were just scouting people for young people internally that might suit the bill. And, but, you know, I needed to get my university education and to mature and to learn a little bit and read another 500 books. <laughs> and party at the Big Bop. Of course. Okay, I, I have a question that one of our listeners left on voicemail for you to answer. So I'm going to play that now for you. Okay. okay. Hi, Erica. It's Amy Ballon calling. I missed you. I hope you're doing well. I love the idea of your reinvention of the DJ podcast and wanted to hopefully be one of the first ones to call your new 800 number. So I'm calling with a question for the podcast because I'm actually currently working with a client who is a relatively new owner of one of the last remaining independent retailers on Queen West, Groovy Shoes. So here's my question. I'm wondering about what the culture of Queen West was like back in the day. Where did you and the VJs eat? Where did you drink? Where did you shop? Groovy Shoes um, is on Queen West now 47 years old, and it's one of really less than a small handful of independent retailers left. I mean, like, Aritzia and Zara are great, but the flavor of the street, which is truly iconic in Toronto, in no small part because of 299 Queen West, um, and the vibe of the street is just so different now. Aw, trip down memory lane, Amy. Um, Well, I remember where I ate uh, very well. I used to love, and it was a treat to go to the Queen Mom. I used to always love going to the Rivoli. Me too. The Queen um, Mom and the Rivoli, of course. Pad Thai, hello. Hello, all the time. Um, I And further west, I, I loved um, La Hacienda, the burrito place. And I also went um, to um, uh, a really special treat was Peter Pan. Of course. My, <laughs> girlfriend, my girlfriend Jackie worked there. And what about 
the clothes that you wear, were they also found on Queen Street at all the boutiques? Oh, definitely. I, um, so I, as an entertainment reporter, because I anchored, um, I was able to do a contra deal. So people gave me clothes and then at the end of the show, they said who the clothes were by. That was something that happened back in the 90s. So I wore fun people like Peach Berserk, Kingy Carpenter. Um, I wore, sometimes I wore back, oh, um, Comrades. And um, I wore- Ding, ding, uh, ding. Ding, ding, yes. <laughs> uh, Pam Chorley, remember that store? Did she oh, fashion from? Crimes. Fashion Crimes, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but I wore a lot of vintage. I shopped a lot on Queen West West. Um, and, uh, oh, I wore Fluvogs shoes. What happened to all my Fluvogs? I should have kept them. <laughs> I think that a lot about my my outfits now, that they would have been right in style today. But here's another thing that we had in common, Doug McRae. Oh, so, yes. <laughs> so you were dating a guy that I dated, and he was a, an artist on Queen Street. Yes, he was an artist on Queen Street. He painted these massive murals, very talented, um, uh, professional, well, professionally trained uh, from OCAD. He had studied, um, and uh, yeah, no, that was those were, those were really fun, fun days. Very, and, and you know, this is one of the things that I love about um, City and Much Music was that the people that work there, and um, I will say in the entertainment side, we really lo- lived the life. Like we didn't just read a script and then present it. No, we, there was no script. There was no script. And you know, it's so funny today. I told my, uh, my, 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 my boss sent a, a link to a bunch of much music videos to our team to say, you know, Teresa had a life before us and us as heart and stroke. I've worked there for um, almost 10 years anyway. And the video is, uh, you know, the best loved uh, much music videos of all time. And uh, you were in there and I was in there with Power 30, and, um, and there's me reading with all these papers. And I've got all these papers, I'm reading my notes. You know, I thought nobody would allow that today, having a presenter, have a bunch of like papers. And I'm not saying it looked good, but that was very representative of what we did, which was we just did it. We just did it ourselves. That's you know? right. We did it all ourselves. We did it all ourselves, yes. I'll put you on the spot for fun. What would you say was the penultimate day that you had on Much Music? Describe it for me. One was at Much Music and another one was offsite. The one at Much Music was when Chris Isaac came to town, the crooner. Now, Chris Isaac was a hottie, probably still very good looking guy. And back then it was all, oh, Chris Isaac. Oh, Chris Isaac's going to be in the studio. Well, I got to interview him. I'm not really sure why. I think it was because of my city TV stuff. So sometimes my city TV entertainment ended up on the Much Music channel. There's a lot of crossover because we always crossed over material. And I interviewed him upstairs on that little balcony that they have facing the parking lot. And he was lovely. So we decided to play it up, play the fact that he was a, he was such a, um, a, a hunk. <laughs> yes, <laughs> a heart throb. <laughs> so we did this whole thing about me going in to interview him and, you know, being like, <laughs> and then doing the interview and then leaving. And then he gets into a limo and he waves gu- goodbye. And I'm like, you know, swooning. Anyway, it was a little like Teresa, the terrible actress. And I only say it was a penultimate moment only because it was so much fun. 
it was pure fun. It wasn't that difficult. His music was easy to listen to. He was dating that top model, um, one of those ones that didn't get out of bed for under 10,000. Not Linda, <laughs> but her friend. Right. Her friend was in all the Michael, Chrissy, Chrissy. Turlington? Turlington. Mm. Um, anyway, that was definitely a highlight. I, there's too many. See, this is the thing, Erica. Somebody will ask you, and you've got 10. Leonard Cohen at um, uh, then the Hummingbird Center went with Rebecca De Mornay hanging on for dear life to his arm. Don't you take him. <laughs> and interviewing him. That was really, really, really special. That was an amazing time, moment. And I think Metallica and Molson Park and Barry. Listen to how eclectic your answers are, the different types of people that you had access to, to interview. How does that, is there an interview that you did that literally changed the way you think? <laughs> uh, well, I know Leonard Cohen was pretty deep. I asked him, he was very funny and, and witty. And um, I asked him if there was any song that he ever really wished he had written that he hadn't written. And he answered, Blueberry Hill. I found my thrills, you know. I thought, that is so interesting. And so there wasn't, I just, it's hard, hard to answer that if there's one interview. Um, I can tell you that my experience as a news reporter brought a lot to my music interviews. Because you saw people sometimes in the depths of their despair. And, um, you know, people that have been, uh, had crime perpetrated against them. And then when you went into music, you realize that they're there doing a job. They're there for their record company. So you can go a little, you realize that there's a lot behind what they're saying. And when you go a little deeper, you start getting to who the person really is. Um, and I like, like you, I like to have a conversation. Sometimes if you have like your five question scripts, there's some things you want to ask right off the top, but then you get into the good stuff. So I think it's not so much one person that changed. It was just the style of going a little bit deeper and having that conversation. Also, I really wish I had the half today back then because I think I would have really kicked some serious butt. Me too. I'm way smarter. And you have more insight and more perspective, et cetera, for sure. I totally agree, which is why I'm having so much fun doing these interviews for two reasons. Number one, because I think my skill as an interviewer is better. And also everybody who used to work at much is way more interesting today, I think. Anyway. Well, most people get more interesting as they age. If they continue to do something uh, worthwhile, something with their brains, that's just normal, right? I just spent a week with my 81-year-old mom. I don't want to say how old she is. Just, Teresa, why do you say how old you are? Why wouldn't I say how old I am? <laughs> why would I deny you know, my experiences to the world. Um, okay, so why did you leave City and Much? Dream job. Yes. Fun. Uh, it, it's, it was challenging, I guess. Yes. Why did you leave? Yes, good question. Um, I left because I got an offer of a lifetime to go um, host, co-host an international show on the Discovery Channel that took me traveling all over the world doing adventure travel 
eco-adventure travel. And I know that it was a dream job at City, but it was my first job. And I wanted to try my hand at doing something else. Did, did, they, did they beg you to stay or did they say, see ya? They were quite upset. I feel very badly about how we went down. It was a big surprise. I didn't really give them a chance to counter offer. But I don't like playing games like that. If I'm decided in my head I'm taking a job, why am I going back to do a negotiation to do a counter offer? I wasn't using anything as leverage. I had made the decision to go somewhere else. So let's let's play the our lives are the same again. Guess what I did after I left Much Music Discovery Channel? And it was a show called The Power Play, which was not dissimilar to what you were doing, extreme forms of leisure. Um, but what's different I about our experience... very well. Right. But what's different about our experience is you met your husband doing that <laughs> show. How did you know that he was the right person for you? Well, um, maybe you could probably say the same thing about your husband because I know him a little bit. Uh, we just had... Well, first of all, we worked in the same industry... He understood what it was like to be on TV and he understood to be what it's like um, to do TV. Was he, a was he the producer, the director? What was his, what was his role yeah, he in was that my show? Producer. He was a producer. Okay. Yeah. He was, he was a segment producer for the program. Um, and he works for Bell Media today. Still. Um, still. And, and we just, you know what? Yes. And we just hit it off immediately. Like I, it was honestly sparks i won't say love sparks at first sight <laughs> that's crazy um, and also you you were probably traveling around the world to exotic places which is sort of where romance kindles easily i would guess well you know very well because you traveled a lot and i'm sure you met some people when you were traveling but one day on the road is like one month back home right because you have shared experiences Right. And you, people see you at, you know, in these situations where you're, you're in an airport, you're traveling. You, um, I remember um, somebody at Much Music, Nancy, saying, um, when you go on the road with a, a camera person, a producer, you got to think, if you're stuck in an airport at four o'clock in the morning with all your equipment, all your gear, you're exhausted. You've had a 16-hour day. You've had nothing to eat. And all you've got is like half a bottle of water. Who do you want to be stuck there with? Ah, the glamour of television. <laughs> yes. So do you miss being on camera? Because ah, after what? Discovery, you were... Oh, I did more camera. Oh, I you did more. You. Okay, so, so what did you do? Uh, so after the Discovery show, which didn't go again, it was like one, it was 51 hour episodes. Who the hell renews that? But anyway, it was an experience of a lifetime. I ended up doing some producing for Discovery and hosting another kids show. And actually, my little niece just saw it. Believe it or not, they were just playing it in her virtual classroom. Um, and I, then I, I actually went to work for CTV Toronto as a news reporter. So I went back to news. And I really, I, I learned to write more. And, um, and, you know, again, I grew and solidified my skills. And then I, you know, my husband and I got married and I had kids, and I think this is around the same time because your kids are the same age as ours. Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, and then I thought, what the heck? What am I doing, doing local news? I found myself at 11 o'clock on the 401 interviewing a gravel truck driver who was going on strike. They were going on strike, and I thought, why am I not home with my baby? Why am I on the 401 
cold, doing an important story about a labor strife, but why am I not home? <laughs> so I decided to go into PR um, because I had been at the Scarborough Hospital um, interviewing the director of communications there. And I said, you know, I really like your job. She said, you know, Teresa, I think I really, no, she said, I really like your job, Teresa, interviewing people. Her name is Yana, Yana Manalakis. And, uh, and I said, you know, I think I really like your job. So she ended up hiring me. There was a position as a media relations specialist. And that's how I cut my teeth in PR. But you, didn't you go to school? Didn't you study later. PR? Yes, I did later. In my, my so, you, so you got the job first yes. and then you went to school. That's yes. backwards, by the way. No, no, it's fine. <laughs> don't you ever want to think, well, you know, I'm in a field and I don't know enough about it. Look how many executives go to get their executive MBA when they already are an executive. Right. So um, I just didn't feel like I knew enough about it. And, you know, I felt if I'm going to continue doing this, I might as well learn. But I have to tell you, Eric, I don't know if you've ever gone back to university as an adult with little toddlers. You get much better marks. It's unbelievable. Because? Why? You study. You study. <laughs> you study and you're focused and you care and you're not lost or not to say you are. That's my question for you at the end. But wait um, a second. I have a question for you about you mentioned being at the Scarborough Hospital. If I remember correctly, you were there during the SARS outbreak. So tell me about that experience with the perspective of COVID now. Well, first of all, SARS didn't affect the world like COVID. It was very contained um, to an outbreak in hospital settings. Um, there were some community, it was some community spread, but it was still fairly contained. I'm not, obviously not a doctor, but I think it was quite uh, contagious, violent in its uh, uh, symptoms. So people were able to tell right away they had SARS. Well, people that had SARS got very, very sick. I don't recall any of this, you know, asymptomatic people walking around uh, spreading it. So, but I have to tell you, it was a really, really defining um, experience for me um, in my life as a person. Uh, anyone that worked through SARS remembers it very clearly. I have a chronology of events because I was the media relations point person at the Scarborough Hospital, ground zero for SARS in Canada. And some days I had 40 interview requests. Now, from, around the, from around the world? Yes. Yes. I had requests from reputable news magazines all around the world. Everybody wanted to know what was going on. And here's this like, Teresa Roncon, who just got her first job in PR, <laughs> dealing with it. But I mean, obviously I had a team and I was the media relations specialist, but I learned, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about messaging. I learned a lot about communications. And that's one of the reasons I went back to school and I got a certificate at Varson because I really wanted to be that person with a background and understood, uh, you know, the history of communications mm -hmm. and, and various aspects. But I learned a lot. And, you know, at one point I was even in quarantine because I was exposed. I went into the ICU and there were people in the ICU. I brought a CBC camera crew. So when I realized that I needed to be in quarantine because it was a very, you know, it was a bit murky like today, like the rules, I got out of, I mean, by then we were already wearing masks. I left the Scarborough Hospital, zipped by my kids' daycare, grabbed them, went home, and that was it. I kept, I stayed in quarantine. I had a baby at home still. He was only one. 
And it was very traumatizing. A lot of people were traumatized by it. And wow. the, thing that, the thing that I remember the most that traumatized me was that people died alone. People died from other things, other conditions, alone in hospital because the hospitals were all on lockdown. And it made me so deeply sad. But so you left. I, and then I got, and then, you know, uh, this happens with a lot of jobs where there's like a trauma at the job for some reason, a big event happened at the job. And the people were there that saw that through, just they need to leave. You need to move on from there. And that's where, when I went there, my uh, kids uh, at OLG, Ontario Lottery and Gaming Corporation, and I worked there for six years. And there was another whole thing there with the stolen lottery tickets where I learned a lot about issues management. <laughs> and and that's where I actually went to school when I went to Ryerson. Um, so did you go to school while you were working? Yes, and had the little kids. That's what I'm saying. Isn't it funny how I didn't find time to find, do my homework when I was in u- university the first time, but the second time around, I worked full time. I raised two kids. I had a full, you know, I had a husband at home too. I think by then a dog, I'm not sure. <laughs> and went to school. I mean, it was part-time. I, it didn't, you know, it took me a while. I think I got six out of the eight credits. So the last two were media relations. And I thought, oh my goodness, I could be teaching it by now. Right. But still I went to school, but I loved it. I loved going to school as an adult. I do dream back. about it. I do dream about it. You should go back. That will be part of, that will be part of my reinvention in some way. I just will need to decide what exactly I want to go to school for. And that well, will be, who knows, right? Who knows? Let's okay. talk about it. <laughs> we, we, you and I are going to have to put on masks and drink coffee or wine, something like that. And, and yeah. So, and I guess the question that I have for you is how do you know when you need to pivot or reinvent? Because you've done it so many times. Well, I've done two big ones, right? And within those, I've had a few things. Um, I would always say, you know, it's so funny. When I first got the job at City, um, I told my dad how much I was making. and It was very little. I was making more as a bartender, by the way, four nights a week with 20 hours of work. But that's because it was tips and all of that. And I said, you know, it's not a lot of money. And he said, well, first of all, it's an opportunity of a lifetime. Secondly, he said, success doesn't come from money. Success comes from the feeling of a job well done inside of you. I thought, OK, it's fine. You know, so I haven't always felt that, but mostly I feel I do, you know, and when I feel I'm not, there's always reasons. I mean, there's, you know, fluctuations. And I think we need to pivot from me when I need a new challenge, when I'm bored, when I need to see what else is out there. But I'm a huge, huge believer, proponent on work-life balance. I admire uh, women that that have these big jobs and I honestly don't know how they do it. And they still appear to have time for their children and their husbands and their partners. And I, 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 I only have so much space. And um, so I think you need to pivot according to the things that are important to you in life. And if that moment you need more money, then go for a job that makes more money. What's wrong with that? You need a job that keeps you at home. Like I did back then when I had the little ones, that's what I did. So you're working at Heart and Stroke right now, and I know that being authentic is super important to you, and that being authentic to you leads to success. So how does working at Heart and Stroke tie into that idea? Heart and Stroke, as a nonprofit, um, I, I believe in the mission. I believe in the mission of the work that we're doing. Which um, is? Well, we're 
fund, we're collecting donations for research into um, heart disease, stroke, vascular cognitive impairment. Um, we advocate for healthier policies in our government. We uh, gather communities of people with lived experience of our diseases so they can talk to each other and uh, figure out what makes, what makes life easier for them, you know, have somebody to connect with. So knowing that when I'm uh, writing content for the public, knowing that when I pitch the media, when I pitch you, Erica, to say, you know, I've got this great story, um, I believe in the product that I'm pitching. So that's how uh, authenticity plays into it for sure. In PR, you need to believe in what you're doing and, or you need to be there for a reason that's an authentic reason for you. Well, but I would say that it's not just in PR. I think in life, you have to believe in what you're doing. And when we all worked at Much Music, I think that we all believed in the power of music, bringing people together. And, um, and I feel like you're still doing that. You're doing the things that that are important to you. And I think that that's fantastic. So I'm going to tell you, uh, I did get a question from uh, someone who listens to the show. His name's Mike. He's in Oakville. And he asked, who is going to interview you, Erica, since I was a VJ on Much Music? And I was like, not going to happen. It's my show. But it, it did make me think it would be fun if, since I'm interviewing interviewers, to give everyone one question that you would like to ask me. So this is your chance, Teresa. One question, what would you like to ask me? And thanks, Mike, for that opportunity. <laughs> so you mentioned it just before we started. And I thought I would ask you a question that relates to the question I asked Alanis Morissette at the Much Music Video Awards in New York City, which was an amazing experience for me. And what I asked her was, did you dream it would be this big? So I'm going to modify it slightly for Erica and ask, did you think you'd have this big career? Did you have a plan? That's a good question. Damn you, Teresa. <laughs> I had zero plan when I started. All I knew was that I needed to work in the music business. That was it. And I would do anything and I did do anything and everything in order to get into the music business. There was no much music. So it wasn't like I had my eyes on getting a job on much music because I was part of the invention of much music, if you will. I, I, there was nothing to aspire to in that case. When I got the job, it was the right job because I wanted, I wanted to be part of the music business. I wanted to be an actor and I wanted to be a teacher. And so really it's all tied up. And then what I discovered while being on Much Music is that being a role model was really important to me and that I understood that I had great power by being in front of the camera. That became really important to me. And I felt like I should speak out because I had the platform. And so when I had kids, the same thing happened, Teresa, because I was struggling. I was like the worst new mom, was crying all the time, couldn't nurse, um, super depressed. I didn't know a lot of women who had kids at that point. I should have called you. I know. Sorry. I was, I was too freaked out. Like I was really struggling. And I started a, a TV show called Yummy Mummy 
And the objective of the show was specifically to sort of speak about the dark side of being a mom and the the idea that everyone is worried about the kids, but no one is really paying attention to the struggles of modern moms who are used to working, who are used to often being A-types, who are struggling with the new balance at home. So it's the new generation where um, mothers don't always handle 100% of the domestic work and that kind of thing. And so I started this TV show, which eventually became a website. And it's been 14 years that I've sort of been a, I guess, a spokesperson for empowering women who have kids. And no, I wouldn't have planned it. But I, I do know that I, if there's one thing that's always been consistent for me is that I deeply believe in what it is that I do for a living and that my passion leads me to my jobs. So that's consistent. Is that an okay answer for you? Very good answer. And I ask because we have kids and, you know, I think today a lot of things are planned out and we try to guide our kids with plans. But like you, I had no plan. But I did have a plan. You did have a plan. I did have a plan. I was super driven by the time I was 14 or 15. I was super driven. And my kids, our kids are around the same age now. They're late teens. I think, is that, is that how old your kids are now? Late 21. And I, mine are 16 and uh, 20. So they're pretty much around the same, in the same space. And I can see things that light my kids up, but I don't know who they're going to be. And all I do is I tell them, whatever you want to do, I'll support you. Really go for your dreams. Do what you love. I completely agree. Sorry, I misspoke. You didn't have a plan to be in that job. You had drive. Yes. And you, and you had a plan to drive yourself to doing something you wanted. I, I misspoke in how I, I positioned that, but uh, no, you absolutely did. Teresa, I love talking to you. It's funny it how we worked in the same place for, I think it was seven years. Oh, yes. And but I don't think that we ever actually sat down and had this kind of, you know, really deep conversation. And um, even though our lives were ding, 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 so similar in so many ways. Well, it was busy. We were at work. You know, yeah. even though you're there, you're actually on all the time. And That's right. you're preparing and you're running off with a camera. I wanted to tell you one more thing before I left. When you asked me what was the most fun thing and memorable experience, and I give you the story about Chris Isaac. It's really hard to just put one, just to talk about one. But I wanted to say one of the most memorable experience was hosting the Much Music Video Awards before it was a thing. I right. think it was the second or third year. And it was all just very loosey-goosey. So I, they decided they were going to send someone to New York. And it was me. <laughs> you imagine? And I just thought, okay, that's great. I, you know, I didn't plan my wardrobe. I grabbed a couple of things. And like, I, I don't even think that I thought much except just bring some nice shoes and maybe a little jacket. And, and now everybody plans everything out. You know, on Instagram, you see all the wardrobes laid out for day one, day two, day three with a shoe. Glam spot. squad. Yes. Everybody has a glam squad. And so none, that was not like that at all. So that's actually where I interviewed Alanis Morissette. Um, was at Radio City Music Hall or Carnegie mm -hmm. Music Hall, I can't recall. Um, 
And I was in a live truck and it was really busy because there were all the, all the artists were playing. So we parked the truck kitty corner from the hall and I stood on top of the live truck for two hours. Now, wait a second. Were you there with David Kynes as your producer? Yes. And I see David now once in a while. Okay, So here's a ding, ding, ding. I did the same thing as you, maybe the year before or the year after. I was standing out on the street. I wasn't allowed to go into the awards. And yes. so we would be broadcasting in between when yes. MTV gave us the, some space in between. And I never saw the actual show. Same. Exactly. <laughs> Except that I was outside while the artists were, like you probably, I was in a scrum with the, uh, the other reporters and as the artist came in, you tried to get them to talk to you. And Michael Jackson walked by me. And, um, and of course, he's not looking at anyone. And I just yelled at the top of my lungs, say hello to Canada. <laughs> I just turn around and I'm like, is that weird? Who, who said that? <laughs> but uh, it was all very, very on the fly. It was all very on the fly. Anyway, that was a really fun, funny experience and all the bands that we interviewed. Thank you so much, Teresa. <laughs> and thanks to everyone who stuck with us throughout this show. Um, I really enjoyed talking to you, Teresa. And one of the things that, that stuck with me is the idea of being authentic and that the idea of success being doing something that you love rather than it just being about money. And I do think that that's true. And I, And to add to that, I would also say that Sometimes you can find things that you love to do that are not your job. You get paid for your job and then you do what you love as a oh, hobby. Absolutely. You, yeah. you, your job doesn't always have to be your passion, but you do need to have some it's passion really important to have passions. So for those of you who are listening right now, or for you who is listening right now, thank you so much for staying with us. Um, you really are such an important part of the show. I would love for you to, uh, add to the show by giving us a call. We put up a special phone line and uh, the number is 833-972-7272. And if you call up, you can leave a voice message and you could tell, um, give us sort of feedback on the show, what you like, what you didn't like. You can suggest other people that should be included in the show. You can suggest questions that you would like asked. And you can just reminisce about some of the the highlights or lowlights from watching Much Music over the years, because I know Much Music has meant so much to so many. So thanks again for listening and for being part of Reinvention of the VJ. I will hopefully see you next week with another episode of Reinvention of the VJ. And here's to living a life filled with music, meaning, and many reinventions. Thanks for listening. Follow Erica M's Reinvention of the VJ podcast. Subscribe and follow more episodes. Click to reinventionofthevj.com. Podcast produced in collaboration with Steve Anthony Productions. Editing and coordination of Flalo Communications, Inc. Copyright 2020. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast. 
I'm Jeff Woods, and I'm shining a light on music and the rock stars who make it. He just was one of those people, he stood out. He was a magic guy. He really was a magic guy. We all have force. He had the same amount of force as we all had. This was before Led Zeppelin. Robert was full on. I mean, he was Led Zeppelin without the band behind him. He had the hair, the jeans, the whole thing, you know. And he was amazing. The Records and Rockstars podcast, heard around the world and yours to hear wherever you get podcasts. All the episodes from jeffwoodsradio.com.